that in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. But all those truths that we can cling to and bank on and lean upon are only true because you came into this world. You sent your son into this world to humble himself, to lower himself, to condescend, to rescue and redeem a fallen, undeserving people. Were it not for his sacrifice, Lord, we would be in despair with no hope. There would be no song, there would be no truth, there would be no joy if you had left us to our own devices, Lord. But we come today just wanting to uh, ask that you would, in the power of your Spirit, illumine our minds and our hearts to see the glory of this great example of humility in our Lord, this amazing, unfathomable display of grace, and that it would fuel us and propel us to grow into his likeness. Lord, you know where every single person in this room is in relation to you this morning. You know what they carry. You know what prohibits them from running to you. You know what frightens them or gives them anxiety or worry or anger or bitterness. And Lord, I pray that you would dispel those this morning, that there would be no hindrance to seeing your beauty and glory, that you would transform us now even in this moment. Do it for your own glory and for Christ's sake. Amen. I want to ask you a question. If you were to generally categorize your life as one that is occupied with the interests of others or occupied with your own interests, your own desires, how would you categorize your life? Or if you were to have a video display of your life where uh, countless others could see your life carried out, would, that be, would their impression of your life be that this is a person who is consumed with the interest of others more than, than his or herself? I was reading a, I'm, I'm reading a biography currently of Johnny Carson. And if you don't know who Johnny Carson was, he was sort of the original king of late-night television. Um, before there was a Jimmy Fallon, a Jimmy Kimball, David Letterman, Jay, Le- Dave Len- Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, all those type of folks, this guy set sort of the, the prototype, the standard by which all these other shows have emerged. And Johnny Carson was a staple on American TV for 30 years, from like 1962 to 1992. He was a star among stars. And so in many respects, he grew up in front of the American public. His life was constantly on display. And many believed him to be an extremely likable, extremely lovable guy, an extremely generous guy who gave away his finances, one who seemed to be concerned with the interests of others. And yet, like all fallen people, he had 
corners of his life, corners of his heart that were unexposed to the public eye, which revealed his true interests, which were his own. It was his, his desire to stay prominent in the spotlight, his own career that caused so much chaos and confusion in his life. He had three failed marriages due to uh, his neglect and infidelity pursuing this career of his and this lifestyle. He had three sons from his first marriage that he never saw because he didn't have time for them. One of the sons, in fact, when he grew up, when he was old enough, he went out to join the Navy because his father, Johnny, had been in the Navy, and so he was seeking to impress his father, to gain the smile of his father, and yet the Navy turned out to be too difficult for him, and he had a psychological breakdown. He was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and he was confined to a mental institution. And Johnny Carson, because he was afraid of what the tabloids, what the media might say when they came around his son or if they made a news story of this, he thought it would be better for his own career and for the interests of his son if he did not go and visit and tend to his son in the mental institution. Rather, he sent his lawyer to go speak with him. Now, before you say and let yourself off the hook, oh, that's an extreme example. At least I'm not that type of selfishness. Be careful because we're warned in Scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, I believe, that when we compare ourselves amongst ourselves or amongst other fallen, degenerate, depraved people and we look at our lives in juxtaposition with theirs and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. He says, in doing that, we're unwise because they are not the standard. Christ is the standard. What he says about humility, how he models humility, what he says about pursuing the interests of others over your own interests is all that matters. And that is the message that is central to the text that we look at today. Paul, just to give you a quick background, Paul begins his letter by informing the Philippians that he is constantly praying for them. They are constantly on his mind, on his heart. They are a, a burden on his heart that he's constantly expressing to the Lord. He's praying for them. In verse 9, he says what he is praying. Verse 9 of chapter 1, he said, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's his desire for them, that they would, their love would grow more and more. He tells us why in verses 10 and 11. He says, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's eye is riveted on that future day when the throng of all humanity, both living and dead, will stand before the living Christ and a final pronouncement of judgment will be cast over their life with eternal consequences. Righteous or guilty? And these Philippians, these, this body, this community of people that Paul so infectiously loves, that he's bled for, that he's suffered for. He is so concerned with their well-being that all he 
desires to know is whether on that day they will be found pure. The evidence that they will be found pure is that they will have led a life filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is what he described in verse 9 as a life that is abounding continually in love. That's the evidence that God's righteousness is working in your life if this love towards others, towards God, out of yourself into the lives of others is constantly growing. Otherwise, we have very little hope. In verses 12 through 26, he gets them caught up, on, caught up to speed with what's happening in his life, that he is in prison for this proclamation of the gospel, and that there are some who uh, they see his imprisonment as their, an opportunity to advance their own ministries, their own preaching careers, and their own notoriety. Now that this popular figure, Paul, is out of the picture, they proceed to proclaim Christ for their own benefits. And yet there are others who can see into this, this situation that Paul is in, and they are inspired. They are in awe by the fact that this man is underrailed in his quest to proclaim the gospel, that his joy is undiminished, that his purpose, his drive is unflappable, unshaken, that Paul has seen through the scenario, through the situation to the ultimate goal, and he is unrattled, and they are blown away, and they proceed to preach boldly without fear of what may happen to them, for they're convinced this gospel is true. After doing so, Paul returns to this basic premise in the book that he wants their love to abound more and more. And in verses 27 and following, he says in another way, he, he says that he wants them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, unfrightened by their opponents who are threatening to harm them, and that they should continue to endeavor to spread the Christ-centered gospel. So this love in chapter 2 is where he gets to what that actually looks like. This, our passage today contains the command that's at the heart of this book that I've been referring to, and it appears in chapter 2, verse 4. That's where he's been driving. Now before we look at verse 4, let me just give you a breakdown of the passage. You can break up the passage into three sections. Number one, you could say the call to humility verses 1 through 4. Number 2, the example of Christ's humility, verses 5 through 8. And number 3, the outcome of Christ's humility, verses 9 through 11. The call to, humil to humility, the example of Christ's humility, the outcome of Christ's humility. So we'll start with the first section and look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, let me, let me make a quick comment about this verse. In, <clears throat> in some of the Greek manuscripts that our English translations are based off of, some of them don't possess that one word, also. When he says, also to the interests of others, some manuscripts just say, look to the interests of others, and they don't say, not only to your own interests. So there are some translations that say, as we have here, 
Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But then there are some who say, do not at all, it implies, look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And I'm more inclined to believe that that's actually what's, what's being described here because in all the examples that Paul gives surrounding this verse are examples from his own life, from the life of Christ, from the life of Timothy, from the life of Epaphroditus, of people who were totally consumed with the interests of others and not their own. He starts in, in, in chapter 1 when he's describing the fact that there is a strong possibility that he could die in this imprisonment, that his life could be taken from him. And he, though he relishes death from the standpoint that the moment that he passes out of this life, he'll be ushered into the presence of the king of glory. And that is entirely gain. But he knows that these young believers, young in the faith believers in Philippi, could use his guidance, his exhortation, his uh, leading, his walking alongside them. And so he desires to remain here on this earth where he's been persecuted, where he's experienced threatenings and beatings and lashes and slander and being mocked and being chased from city to city, his life constantly in danger, all that he's willing to endure simply because it is in their best interest and not necessarily his own. Or he moves on in chapter 2 to his son in the faith, Timothy, who he says in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, speaking of Timothy, he says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And notice the, the parallel in the, in the grammar here. He's intentionally drawing a connection to what he said earlier. Interests, their own interests and not to, uh, or the interests of others and not their own. And notice that here he doesn't say, for they all seek only their own interests and not also those of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He just says, these are people who seek their own interests when they ought not, is implied. Those of Jesus Christ. He gives another example of Epaphroditus as, as one who uh, the Philippians send to come minister to his need and while he's in prison. And during the course of ministering to Paul, he risks his life and he becomes so sick that he's nearly to the point of death in his ailment. And he becomes distressed, but not because he's sick. He becomes distressed because his Philippian brothers and sisters will be upset, emotionally disturbed that he is sick. In other words, it's not his own physical agony that causes him distress, but their emotional discomfort that he's concerned about that's consuming him. It's not his own interest. It's their interest, their well-being. And so we have these earthly examples, and in our passage, we see the preeminent example in Christ. Christ is one who had everything, absolutely everything, absolutely every reason, every justification to be concerned only with his own interests and to leave humanity 
to suffer for the sins of their first parents, for their own sins, and to utterly be destroyed. Every incentive. And yet he is the highest example of self-denial, of pursuing the interests of others over and above his own. This mark of humility is at the center of this book because it's at the center of Christian living. This is what the life of a Christian looks like. If you see a Christian, if you were to see their life, if I were to see your life, if you were to see my life, it ought to portray a person who is constantly moving towards others, who isn't consumed with my desires, my space, my time, my finances, my wants, my needs, but is moving outside of themselves towards others and growing in love. It's a tall order. And so Paul, knowing that, brings a compelling argument beginning in verse 1 to persuade us to walk in this truth. He says in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And when he says if, it's clear that he's not saying that there's a possibility that this could not be the case. Paul is certain that these are realities in your life, but he's using a a rhetorical device to say, if there's even the smallest indication of these realities in your life, of the goodness of God being lavished upon you and extended towards you in your life, even the smallest indication would warrant you surrendering your life to this incredible, gracious God. And yet the what he's presupposing is that there are infinite examples in your life of these things. One example would be enough, and yet your life is full of them. Let's look at them one at a time. If there's any encouragement in Christ, this word encouragement is literally a compound word, two words mashed together, the word meaning to call, to call to someone, and the word meaning along one's side. So literally the word is, uh, for encouragement or to exhort, is to call someone along one's side. Paul uses, he's fond of this word when he's trying to persuade believers of the glorious God that he's seen, and he's calling them to his side to stand upon this ground, this sure foundation of the gospel. Anytime he's saying, I urge you, I exhort you, I encourage you to do X. He's saying, I'm calling you alongside me in this endeavor. In Romans, the first 11 chapters are all Paul's attempt to lay out the the jewels of the mercies of God, the innumerable mercies of God in overcoming the sin of pagans and overcoming the sin of Jews, for we're all, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet God has offered this separate righteousness apart from the law, apart from your deeds. It's merely faith placed upon Christ, and he goes on and on to enumerate the excellencies 
of this gospel, of this great God. Finally, in verse in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I call you alongside to stand upon this truth. That's what he means by encouragement. If there's any example in your life, any evidence of God's encouragement, of God's calling you alongside him, of God's calling you to himself, be it through your reading, be it through your singing, be it through the believers who he's placed around you, be it through your parents or any circumstance that causes you to focus your gaze upon him, if there's any evidence of that grace in your life, be of one mind, grow in love, consider the interests of others, not your own. He also says if there's any example of, of comfort from the love of God. This particular one, comfort, God's comfort in his love is striking to me right now just because recently my wife and I have been talking a lot about and just wrestling over uh, the problem of evil. And not just like evil generically, but when you really think about pressing the truth that we have from the scriptures about how we understand evil in the world and looking at specific examples that are horrifying, that really take place in the world and are forced to ask the question, does God's comfort and love, is it really powerful enough to extend to those situations, to those people, to those broken hearts? How do we reconcile this. And eventually we are just forced to reckon with the fact that those believers who have dealt with immense pain in this life, who are like those who have set out beyond the horizon to the, the deep waters of the mysterious providence of God and there have experienced horrible uh, tempest of devastation and destruction and despair in their life and yet have emerged from those dark stormy clouds. The consistent testimony down through the ages has been of Christians that though they feared the storm and going into the storm and they wrestled with God in the storm, they now know God in a way that they never did or could have before. They know of his love in a more sure way than they ever could have before. And if that sounds illogical to you, that's what Paul is referring to when he says the peace that surpasses understanding. He's saying there's a way to know God that you cannot merely intellectualize because logically it won't seem to make sense. How can you have peace and assurance and love in the midst of this tragedy? And yet those who have encountered God can say it is to be had and it is real. I was reading a story of or a blog post by a girl who would be a, a great example of this, a woman named Vicky. And Vicky's blog blog post opens like this. She says, 
Can you imagine hating life so bad that you cut and burn your body to try to feel better? She's letting you into her life. I have over 250 cut marks on my body that I'm not proud of, but they are past reminders of what my miserable life was like before God rescued me from my self-destruction. Here's her backstory. She was a woman born in Pennsylvania in 1968. She says that she was raped by an acquaintance of her mother at the age of five. She was physically and sexually abused by her brothers from ages seven to 17. She was raped twice by her uncle at the age of 19. And she says, from an early age, I struggled with feelings of inadequacy, low self-esteem, anger, and hatred towards men. As a child, I was in therapy, a bedwetter, was attracted to girls, had strong desires to be a boy, and often dressed as a boy. As I entered my teens, I endured a sexual identity crisis, dealt with self-destructive behavior, developed anorexia and bulimia, was an alcoholic, dabbled in drugs, was in and out of therapy, and entered the Marines to try to get away from it all. This is the type of scenario where Christian cliches don't speak to the heart. Where some type of neatly packaged proposition of Christian truth isn't enough to merely intellectually convince the mind of God's goodness of reconciling the reality that there is a God who is sovereign over all things, that there is nothing that can happen outside of at least his permission, which would make him, to some degree, culpable of all things, allowing evil to exist in this world, and reconciling that with the love of God. How is that possible? This girl, at the prompting of one of her friends, started going to a church. She didn't grow up in a church. She was skeptic of everything, understandably, for everything that she had endured, everything that she was trying to untangle in her life. And she said that on one of the first Sundays that she went to church, the pastor taught the story um, out of Mark, where Jesus comes down after the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down off the mount. And there's the demon-possessed man there, a man who is out of his right mind, who is cutting himself, um, just destroying himself, and is beside himself, naked and isolated and alone. And she immediately resonated with this story. But contrary to what you may have thought, where you may have thought I was going with that, she became angry at God. She became angry because in the story, this man who's cutting himself, who's experiencing some type of anguish and agony is delivered immediately, sitting clothed in his right mind. And she's wondering, God, if you're real, how could you let me deal with this for such a long time? And yet to her own admission, she found something compelling irresistibly drawing about this Christ, about this Jesus. And though she 
by her own uh, account, though she railed with God, she wrestled with God, she cried out to God, wondering why she could not turn away from this Christ figure. And long story short, after a year and a half of wrestling with God, she became so overwhelmingly convinced of his presence, of his goodness, of the fact that everything that she has endured will somehow be returned back to her in glory, manifest a thousandfold, that God is a God who will keep his promises, that there is nothing meaningless that happens in this life. He can't explain exactly why the specific things that happened in her life have happened, but she has been granted a rest that surpasses understanding from her own situation that she can trust this God. And now it's her life ambition to, to, to write these blog posts, to plead, to beg for others who may be wrestling with similar things, to not turn away from this God. I can't explain that. Other than to say, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, the comfort of God, the love of God which surpasses all understanding has come to her. Paul says, if there's any evidence of that love in your life, that God has touched you by that love, that God is pursuing you with that love, if there's any evidence of that in your life, you ought to give your life to this God. Quickly with the rest, he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, that's referring most likely to the Holy Spirit proper, uh, if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if there's any evidence that the Holy Spirit is, is working upon you, is coming alongside you, that's also what fellowship there means, that it's the picture of one who comes alongside a friend and speaks tenderly with them and guides them. If there's any evidence of the Spirit doing that in your life, working in your heart, speaking into your heart the truths of God, complete my joy, he says. If there's any affection and it, literally, he uses this word to refer to himself in chapter 1 when he says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. And literally, it means guts, like entrails. Like he's, he's trying to say that, that type of feeling that you have when you are just so consumed and in love uh, and passionately uh, for some type of person that you feel that deep-seated uh, emotion in your gut. And he says, I long for you with all the guts of Christ Jesus and he's saying, if there's any evidence of, of that, of that churning in you in your life, or of God creating that or fostering that or demonstrating that towards you, that type of deep affection, the guts, the, the deep-seated emotion uh, of love in your life, complete my joy. So he's laying out this case. If there's any evidence of any of the graces of God in your life, then you ought to give him your Life And so he goes in verse 3 to sort of uh, uh, flesh it out, unpack it a little bit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now what's interesting is that when he says the word conceit, it's actually a word that this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. And once again, it's, it's a compound word that he sort of creates. It's two words mashed together. A word meaning empty and a word meaning glory. So he's saying, do nothing from empty glory. 
And the reason that he uses this unique word in this time is because he's about to, to play on those words in his description of Christ. Because basically he's saying, the, 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 what he's trying to say is this. When you operate out of your own interests in this life, you are operating out of a, a sense of empty glory, as if you were glorious yourself, but you're not. You're, you're empty of glory in and of yourself. And then he's about to go on and to describe this glorious one who dwelt in glory through all eternity past and how he willingly emptied himself. He uses the same word for empty. Just to show by contrast, you are one that is, does not inherently possess glory, but the one who did emptied his glory for you. Thus why he calls us to be humble. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So this power that we've been, uh, this act that we've been describing of counting others more significant than yourselves, the locus of power to actually carry that out is humility. Lowering our stature, our view in our own eyes, elevating that of others around us in our life and elevating the, the uh, prominence of God in our lives and the, the throne of our hearts. This act of humility, how do we actually gain the power to do, to grow in humility so that we can live this way? And what he does here is he holds out Christ before us and just says, look at him. Continue to gaze upon him. Continue to meditate upon what he has done. Continue to meditate upon how this glorious God has come into this world and the implications of that. What he possessed and what he gave up. What you had to offer nothing and what he redeemed. Continue to look at Christ. It's, it's another way of saying Jesus' own words in John 15 when he says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. What he's saying is that I'm the vine, I'm the source of life, and it's as you continue to uh, walk with me, continue to gaze upon me, continue to be attached to me as branches would to a vine. It's as you continue to do that, that you will grow in fruit. Apart from me, you won't. You can't. And so Paul holds out our chief example of humility in the incarnation of Christ. Starting in verse 5, the example of Christ. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Miracles, on the incarnation that I think is a helpful image to have in mind as we think of the eternal God coming into this world. He says, Lewis, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping 
lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must also disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light, for down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. A vivid picture of describing the one who is himself glorious, did himself possess all the riches of heaven, the praise of thousands upon thousands of majestic, majestic, awe-inspiring creatures in the presence of his Father, perfectly content. And yet Paul says that he gave up all of those riches and became poor, that we being poor might become rich. He describes in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, this Christ, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, from this verse, he uses, uh, in the English, we see the word form three times, but it's actually two different words that he's, he's sort of alternating between in the Greek. And I think he's doing it deliberately because one word, morphe, refers to like, when he says form, he's referring to like the core of a person, the essence of what they are, what they never cease to be. And on the other hand, there's the word schema, which refers to sort of the outward appearance or current shape of something. It's as if I could say that my morphe is male, but my schema changes. Like I, I was a baby, then became a boy, then became an adolescent, then became an extremely handsome man, and etc. But one of those laughs was like a, ha, ha, yeah, right. I heard that. That was more than just laughing with me. But, uh, but anyway, he, uses, he alternates between these forms. And so he says in verse 6, though he was in the form of God and uses the word morphe, meaning he's trying to drive home the point that at his essence, this was and is God fully. This being that came into the world is God, did not cease to be God. Indeed, he cannot because in his essence, in his morphe, he is God. And when he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the image is not something, someone who is trying to reach for something that they don't have. Rather, the image is of someone who fully possesses something and yet is willing to relinquish his grip upon it. All the benefits that he enjoyed in eternity past, in glory, in his equality with God, 
he was willing to relinquish. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And again here, it's morphe. Meaning that at his core, at the essence of who Christ is, he is servant. He is others-minded. He is interest of others-minded. Thus he was born into the likeness of men. And then ate, and being found in human form, and here he uses schema, which we said is sort of the outward appearance of something. And now, if you're familiar with just like Christian theology, some red flags might be going up. Like, are you about to say that he wasn't fully a man? Because we know the Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man, 100%. So what is Paul doing here? I believe that Paul is intentionally using this other word just to continue to drive home the point once again Remember that this was God who came into the world. That he never ceased to be God. He never gave up his deity in order to come into the world. He is and continued to be of inestimable value and worth. That's what was sacrificed and slaughtered on the cross. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The most horrendous way in the ancient world to die. And what's amazing is that this being who is God, who, it, who can at any point get himself out of the immeasurable pain that he experiences on the cross. At any point, Jesus could have gotten down when the derider said, if he's really God, let him come down off of the cross. He could have. And he could have wiped everyone out who was there deriding him, mocking him, beating him, spitting upon him. And yet willingly chose obedience all the way to the point of death that you, the, the pearl that C.S. Lewis describes, the pearl that is submerged in slime and ooze and old decay of sin might be retrieved. He is our supreme example. And what is finally the outcome of his humility? Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he says every name in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, he's, he's alluding back to Old Testament texts like Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 5, where God prohibited the Israelites from creating idols. And he says, don't make an idol like anything that you see, any creature that you can imagine in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And the reason that Paul is referring to that text is because he's saying that Christ has ascended not just above every man who has ever lived, but every creature, every fathomable thing that could possibly be mistaken for God or be used as an idol. He has ascended above it all. 
God has vindicated him. God has lifted him up, this one who was cast so low. He has achieved and regained his glory and much more so. And isn't Paul leading us there at the end to show that there is an incentive here for living this type of life? That just as Christ, who was humbled, was exalted, you who choose to follow in his likeness, walk in his footsteps, to follow his example, will be exalted. You will be vindicated. You will be at his right hand in glory. All the things that you perceive or the world may tell you, you give up in this life by following this Jesus of Nazareth, they will be returned to you a thousandfold. In this life and especially in the next, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Tongues that have acknowledged and confessed and praised him and those tongues that formerly were used in rebellion against him. Once again, Paul is returning to that scene that he depicted in chapter 1, verse 11, when all of creation will stand before him. There will be no escape. There is no other alternative. All of history is convening upon that point. In one way or another, Christ will be exalted. And the question is, whether you are one of those who are filled with the fruit of righteousness, who are growing in love, who are growing out of yourself into the lives of others, if you are taking up your cross and following your master on this road, on the road to Calvary. Because if so, you will be with him there in glory. Let's pray. Father, like so much of our Christian life, these are simple truths to grasp in concept, but are extremely difficult to grasp in degree. Lord, when you call us out of our selfish interests and into the interests of others, when you call us to walk in the love of Christ? Do we truly understand the depths of that calling? And do we take it seriously? If you are indeed our Lord, our Master, the commander over our lives, are you given your right lordship in our lives? Lord, so often the answer in my life is no. So many areas in my life where the answer is no. And I'm willing to bet the lives of many in here. So, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would work, that you would apply the truth of your gospel, that this would not be business as usual, that we would not skip over these simple truths and hunger over some deep theological point or some uh, experience that is outside of just 
dwelling upon your truth and the ordinary means of grace, Lord, that this would be our aim, to see your will and your glory and to walk in your footsteps. Lord, show 